0: Anybody want to learn their Bible? Anybody want to learn about Jesus? John is amazing. I want to welcome everybody watching my live stream. I want to welcome all y'all here. I want to encourage you to share the stream. Share the stream. Everybody say it with me. Share the stream. Right? We've been given an opportunity to have a global impact and a global influence. Social media, whatever you think is social media, it is a tool of the gospel. It's a tool of the gospel. We just started, you know, we've been doing this for a while and, and just, um, can you, uh, where's, where's Eduardo? Eduardo. Hey, Shelly, can you have him when he gets a chance to take the echo? It's really echoey. I'm not asking you to do it. Shelly's like looking at me like, I don't know how to do it. No, just when he, when he comes over, or Andrew, Andrew's another qualified individual. <laughs> it's, an, it's a tool of the gospel, Right? Facebook isn't for your rants. You can use it for Jesus. and a simple way, you can do evangelism. You can do more evangelism in 30 seconds than most Christians do in a year. And all you got to do is share the stream. Just share the stream. Just share the stream. Just put it out there. It's good stuff. All right, so we're going to do the Gospel of John. So the word gospel means good news. Good news. What's this word gospel mean? It means good news. There are four gospels. Say it with me. Each one. Written to a different audience. If you want to understand what the four Gospels are all about, imagine uh, four four filmmakers with cameras, each one filming Jesus from a different angle and from a different intention. Matthew was written to the Jews. Mark was written to the Romans. Luke was written to the Greeks. And John was written to the whosoevers. And that's all, y'all, right? Right? Each one of the Gospels has a relate, we can, we draw from them all. They're all very, very important. But the original intent, when they were written, they were writing to a specific audience. They were writing with someone in mind. John was the last Gospel written. He was the last man standing. He was the last living apostle. And the history tells us, church historians tell us, from the apostolic age. John was the pastor at Ephesus. And they came to him with the original, with the three Gospels to validate the stories, to authenticate them, and he did, and then he was asked to write a Gospel. And so John has, 90% of the content in John is not in the other Gospels. So John's intention was to not reiterate what was already said, but to bring new information to the table. The three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic Gospels because they're very similar. John is called the universal gospel. So if you wanna look at it from the filmmaker perspective, Matthew is like, his, he's your history channel guy, right? Matthew Matthew opens and Matthew's going deep into history. He's, his opening line is the history of the line of David because David was of the, Jesus was of the king of the Jews. He was to be a direct descendant of Abraham and a direct descendant of David. And to the Jews, that mattered. And so he's telling them right off the rip, he's going there. Mark is your Arnold Schwarzenegger gospel. That's the gospel of action written to the Romans. Romans don't care what your lineage is. They care about power. You don't hold the throne in Rome over lineage. You hold the throne in Rome over power. The most powerful one is the one who ruled. And so the Romans were not interested in that. Right off the rip, Matthew or Mark chapter 1, Jesus is casting out devils. Chapter 1, he's casting out devils action, right? Luke's your art film, right? Luke's all about singing, all about beauty, all about wonder, all about humanity, Jesus's interaction with the people, Jesus's compassion. That's what Luke's all about. Chapter one of Luke, Mary's singing. Chapter one, everybody sings in the book of Luke. First three chapters, it's like, you know, a, a solo, Mary sings the Magnificat, the song of Mary is in Luke chapter 1. In John, well, John never takes the camera off Jesus. The whole time in John, John is an up close biography of Jesus, all about the person of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, and who he truly is, the Son of God. Is there another camera that needs to be given? That'd be my camera. I wouldn't take my eyes off Jesus. I'd be like, this is awesome right? And this is why John has so much appeal. When people come to Christ, it's usually the first Bible, first book that people are told to read. Read. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You come to Jesus, like, I want to read my Bible. Where do I start? John. John. It's deep enough to still make the scholar's mind split, but it's also basic enough for a, a, somebody who's young in Christ to actually begin to understand things. It's very powerful, so let's give you a little history behind the period when John is writing this book. So what's going on here, if you want to we'll just take it. So Jesus tells the disciples, Matthew 28, to go into all the world. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Matthew 28. Jesus is resurrected, gets everybody together, hundreds of them, Pentecost, the whole nine goes on. And Jesus tells all of those who are converted, he said, I want you to take which you've experienced, and I want you to take it into all the world, take it under all the ethnos, take it back to your nations, take it back to your people groups, take it back to everything. And the disciples are like, yeah, it's a great idea. And then they decided to have a camp meeting in Jerusalem and never leave, right? Now, if you ever been to, there's a church out in California, and it's in the mountains, and it's like worship and prayer, and it's just like, it's like you walk even into this, this, this compound, and you're just like, Ooh. You know, and they, have a, they have a ministry school there. And one of the, they tell me is that they can never get the students to leave. Right? Because <laughs> the atmosphere, I'm like, why would you want to leave? Like, you got amazing worship. you got amazing teaching. You're sitting up in the mountains. You know, you, you, you walk out the front door and there's all the Northern California mountains. It's amazing. This is what's going on with the disciples. They're all hanging out in Jerusalem. Nobody's going anywhere. And so what happens is, is that at the time, the empire of the world was Roman, And there's a psychopath who's an emperor and his name is Nero. Nero was a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He wasn't all there. Right? (laughs) And so what Nero does, Nero has more than one psychotic episode. And one of his psychotic episodes, he burns his own city down. Yeah. He creates an economic crisis so that there can be political benefit. (gasps) We've never heard of anything like that before ever. They burnt their own city down, put their own people under duress, and they themselves were the ones who were profiting from it. That was what was going on. And Nero torches the city, and the people are freaking out. Why is the city burned? Nero, you burned it down. We know you burned it down. You know you're the one that's doing all of this and creating all these problems. And Nero goes, no, 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 it's not me. It's the Christians. And so Nero begins this onslaught of Christian persecution that lasted probably 15 years. And during that time, the Jews in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was still standing. The the nation of Jerusalem was still together. And the Jews don't like to be ruled. They have a history of not liking. They're basically been troublemakers throughout history. And they kept doing all these uprisings against Rome. And finally, Nero said, that's it. He tells his son, the Roman general Vespian, and he sends Vespian down to Israel. And he says, I want you to put this uprising to rest. Burn the city if you have to. And so Vespian goes down into Israel around 66 A.D., 66 years after Jesus had, or 30 years after Jesus was crucified in A.D. 33. And so about 30 years after Jesus was crucified, Vespian goes down there. And while Vespian's down there, Nero dies. And so Vespian has to return to Rome, and he's crowned emperor, and he leaves his son down there, Titus. And Titus has something to prove, right? He's a young guy with something to prove. And so Titus is like, it's on. And so Titus goes and basically wreaks havoc, destroys Jerusalem, breaches the walls. And when he destroys Jerusalem, it creates something that history knows as the diaspora, the dispersion. It was the dispersion of the Jews. They just basically went and leveled everything. And they were just, and all of the Jewish people began to flee. But not just the Jewish people were fleeing. It was the Christians of the time that began to flee. And so while all this is happening, John goes to ephesus we don't know this from the bible we know this from history john ends up in ephesus there was a church in ephesus and john ended up in ephesus which was far away from the romans because the romans were hunting and killing the leaders of the church is what they were doing and so john ends up in ephesus he pastors at ephesus for about 15 years basically vespians the emperor he mellows out and So there's no more persecution. Then Titus becomes the emperor. Titus mellows out. Titus is just like, hey, man, live and let live. And then Titus's brother comes to the throne, and his name is Domitian. And Domitian has the kind of psychotic episodes that his great-grandfather had. He's not all there. And so Domitian begins another rampage. He begins to, he begins to, to impose imperial worship, which had been in Rome for a long time, which means basically the emperor is a god. And they would exempt certain groups, particularly Christians and Jews, did not have to worship the emperor as a god. Well, Domitian said, well, we're ending all that. You know, you guys are going to bow or that's it. And of course, the Christians were like, not going to happen, right? Not going to happen. And so the Christians refused to bow to the gods of the culture. The Christians refused to bow to the gods of the culture. They didn't bow to the greed. They didn't bow to the agenda. They didn't bow to whatever was being imposed upon the culture. And the Christians just go, okay, if you say so. They didn't do that. They said, we will not do what our God has told us is wrong. We will not agree with what you say is okay. We don't answer to you. We answer to Jesus. And Domitian said, OK, and he threw down the gauntlet and he began this persecution again, a second wave of persecution. And they didn't really even care. They didn't care. They loved not their lives unto death. It didn't matter to them. Do you know why? Because the honor of the Lord was more important to them than self-preservation. God help us to be a people where the honor of God is more important to us than our own self-preservation. You wonder why a generation of Christians was able to bring the gospel from coast to coast. They reached their generation, they reached the known world in one generation because they loved not their lives unto death. Because the honor and the mission and the mandate of Jesus was more important to them than cultural acceptance. The honor, the mission and the mandate of Jesus was more important to them than self-preservation. It was more important than being kicked off of Instagram or being kicked off of Facebook right? They were losing their head. They were losing their property. They were losing everything, and they didn't care. They didn't care. They didn't care. We've been trained in a different way, right? We've been trained to save our lives. We've been trained to protect our lives. We've been trained to just go along with the program and not offend anyone. This is a modern church. Jesus, as we'll learn, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's offensive, Right? Jesus isn't complicit. He offends people. I don't know if you know that. It's very offensive to be told you're a sinner. That doesn't make me feel good. What we say is you're okay. God loves us all. No, you're a sinner. And you're hopeless and helpless without Christ. You were lost and condemned in your sin. The one who doesn't believe is condemned already. Jesus isn't condemning you. You're already condemned. Sin has condemned you. Jesus has come to save you. So Domitian goes on a rampage, he finds John, right? He finds John pastoring the church at Ephesus. He takes John, the Bible says he was plunged in oil, he wasn't boiled in oil, the Bible doesn't say that, but history says he was plunged in oil, so Domitian is trying to kill him, and then he kind of has second thoughts about it, and history doesn't kill John by plunging him in oil, he sends John to the island of Patmos. And while John is on the island of Patmos, this is where we get the book of Revelation. Right, So John's in isolation, he's on an island in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus is like, you're not alone, let me show you wonders. And John was given, John was given the revelation of the, of the last days. We got the book of Revelation through John's exile. We got the book of Revelation through the persecution of the church. Your greatest time of vision comes through your greatest time of hardship. Anybody with me? Your greatest time of creativity and ideation comes when you look to God under duress. It's true. John wrote the gospel of John in Ephesus, and he wrote, the, he wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. He loves the number seven. Anybody got a favorite number? Right. John loves the number seven, right? It's a prophetic number. It's the number of completion. There's seven IMs. There's seven miracles. There's seven questions and answers, seven references of his death. He's writing this intentionally. He's on purpose. John knew what he was doing. These guys were trained. They knew what they were doing, and so they would code. They would code what they were writing, because if it was a Jew was reading it, numbers mattered to the Jews. They would understand sequences. They would understand that the number value that is written according to what they're saying, he's he's pointing to something. I am the complete. I am the questions are all answered. The complete question and answer is Jesus. So number seven is the number of completion. I'm the complete. I'm complete of miracles. Seven revelations of the Holy Spirit. Seven references to his death. John's purpose is not to get the reader to believe by history. John's purpose is not to get the reader to believe through observation of power and the wonder and the beauty of who and what he is. John's not trying to get the reader to come to Christ through his compassion. John's intention is to get you to come to Christ through encounter. The whole point of John is born again, experiential Holy Spirit. That is, he drives that point home. Over and over and over, Christ can be known. Not just known of, you can know him and you can experience him. And he will live in you. And he will transform you. Can I get a witness? Amen. John's all about Jesus. You cannot overstate the person of Jesus. Say it with me. He is the most significant person in all of history. There is no one more important then Jesus, time itself is divided. Yeah, before Christ, in Amino Domine, the year of our Lord, the birth of Jesus split time. Yeah, what you believe or what you refuse to believe about Jesus will define you. Even as a Christian, you can be a born again Christian and not believe that he's good and that will affect you and that will define you. You can be a Christian and not believe that he is for you, and that can affect you, and that will define you. Right? It's not knowing of him, it's knowing him. Knowing him, who and what he is, knowing the intricacies. If you deny him, that will define you, and ultimately that will define your eternity, for better or worse. They call John the apostle of love. Why? 70, 84 times, so he writes... Three, three letters, a gospel, and the book of Revelation. And 84 times he uses the word love. 45 times he uses the word truth. But 100 times he uses the word believe. And so I'm trying to figure out a name for the series. I'm like, what am I going to call it? I'm like, believe. That's the, emphasis, that's the emphasis of what John is trying to get you to understand. Believe. Believe. He doesn't tell you to understand. He tells you to Believe. He doesn't tell you to contemplate it and quantify it. He tells you to trust and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and to give yourself to it. That's his whole point. John chapter 20 in the book of John, later in the book, he tells you why he wrote the book. He says, this book is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's not a Christ. He is the one and only He is the son of God and that in believing you will have eternal life in his name. Eternal life. (laughs) Come on. Anybody want immortality? Right? Come on. Jesus hands it out like Tic Tacs. Like Tic Tacs. It's true. Walt Disney's in a cryogenic tank, frozen, waiting for somebody to come up with some way of reviving him because he wants immortality. Millions of dollars preserving themselves for immortality. I'm like, Jesus is handing it out like a tic tac, bro. Come on. Give yourself to Him. Oh, no, I could never do that. Submit your life and give your life to the one who can give you eternal life. Oh, no, 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 no. Men love darkness rather than light. Jesus is the true Christ. Say it with me. He's not the Jesus of pop culture, He's not the Jesus of liberal theology. He's not the Jesus of the cults. He's the Jesus, the one and only. The one and only. And this is who I'm proclaiming to you. Man is lost, man is hopeless, man is helpless, and man is condemned in sin without Christ. Your works cannot save you. Your willingness to receive or deny him is what saves you. So what's being born again is all about. There's two types of sin. I teach it over and over again because it needs to be understood. There's the haramatia and the haramatano. The haramatia is the offense. This is what condemns man, is that man is his own God. Man makes up his own way. Sin separated. Adam said, I don't need you. I'm going my own way. And that created the separation. And it's a, it's, the Bible uses the word offense, and it means to push away. Adam pushed God away. He actually pushed himself away. Jesus didn't move. He pushed on Jesus and said, get away from me. And when he pushed on Jesus, he fell. Right? And he fell. And man separated himself from God. And man became hopeless and helpless. When you come back to Christ, you would call him what? What's the L word we call Jesus? He's the Lord. That's what it means to be born again. It's not Jesus the man upstairs. It's not Jesus my big brother. It's Jesus the Lord of my life. You must acknowledge his lordship. Why? That's what saves us. Christ is Lord, I am not. Why? Because all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to our own way. We've declared ourselves Lord. It's the sinfulness that's within our own heart. That's the sin of separation. And so in order for you to be born again, you must return to Christ and call him Lord. I'm not God, you are. It's true, you must bow. In Japan, the house of the shogun, when you entered the house of the shogun, you would come with your head bowed. You came through the door. The door was low so that you would come through your head bowed. You offered your head to the shogun, whether he received you or not. We offer our life to him. That's what we're offering. Conversion is not intellectual assent. Conversion is of the heart. You can be born again and not understand what happened to you. You're like, can you tell me what happened to you? I don't know. I just opened up my heart and gave my life to Jesus, and this is what happened. Right? Right? And then there are other people who try to wrestle to understand it, but their hearts are not converted. Intellectual assent does not equal spiritual conversion. We're hopeless and helpless without him. He came on a rescue mission. He didn't come to negotiate. Hmm? The devil knew why he came. And he tried to negotiate. And Jesus is like, we're not negotiating. He says, bow to me and I'll give you what you came for. And Jesus is like, no way. I didn't come to negotiate. I came to take back what is rightfully mine. You're under the impression, Lucifer, that I have to ask you. I don't have to ask you. And I'm not asking. I've come to take it. I've come to fulfill my own law and fulfill my own right of redemption. And once I fulfilled my own law and my own right of redemption, you'll be crushed under my foot. Huh? He didn't come to negotiate. He came with willful intention. He came for you. Hmm? He came for you. You say, I don't know him. It doesn't matter. He came from you, for you. You say, I'm far from him. I don't even know who he is. The Bible says he loves you from afar. He loves you even though you don't know him. He wants the best for you and wants to know you. And he wants you to know him. So John opens the gospel with, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, say it with me, All things were made through him. And without him, there was nothing that was not made. In him, you can say it with me, come on. In him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overtake it. <laughs> can I get a witness? Amen. John opens the gospel when he goes Intergalactic intergalactic. Matthew goes historical, Mark follows power, Luke's going with beauty, and John's like, we're going intergalactic. Drop the mic. You know what I'm saying? He read all the other Gospels and he's like, wow, I need an intro. What are you gonna do, John? Intergalactic. In the beginning. You can't get more intergalactic than in the beginning. What beginning is he talking about? He's talking about Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What he's saying is Jesus is pre-existent. He's God. He existed before time began. Ready? You want something that really blow your mind? He existed before eternity began. The Lord is not eternal. He's everlasting. He's outside of eternity. The Bible says he created the heavens and the earth. The realms of the heavens. The Oranos. He created the realms. He created a realm for himself. So first thing he did, he created eternity. And the everlasting one stepped into eternity and he populated it with angels and he created his domain his dominion there. And then he said I need sons and daughters. And so he created the realm of the earth in order for him to have a family, sons and daughters. You get the picture? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is pre-existing. He's not say it with me. He's not part of creation. He is the creator. The cults make Jesus a created being. He's Lucifer's brother, or is the archangel Michael. Well, who told you that? If you believe that, you need to go to the mirror and give yourself one of these. He is not Michael's brother, or and, and the angel Gabe Michael, and he is not Lucifer's brother. He's the creator always wanting to diminish God not just not God but they want to diminish Jesus you can say God all you want oh I believe in God I believe in Jesus start using Jesus and see what happens don't go lose canon and start saying God and the neutral God you want to make an impact use Jesus use Jesus I believe in God I believe in Jesus well they're the same no they ain't We all believe the same thing. Not if your God's not Jesus, we don't. In the beginning was the Word. John's going right at the culture. The worldview of the day was influenced by three things. You have three influences going on here. You have the pagans, which are worshiping the demons and doing all their cult rites and doing all this crazy stuff. You have the philosophers. And the philosophers, the philosophical view during this time was was the view that was starting to cover the world. And then you have the Jewish Mindset; those were the things that were going on in the world. The philosophers believed. Now, you just want look at this in like in light of what we, we actually believe. The Greek philosophers. So the whole world was influenced by Greece. I don't know if you know that. Greek philosophy and has influenced the world and continues to influence the world. Our nation is a republic. The republic was founded in Greece, right? Most of the stuff, even the language. If you go to university, their whole name, university, comes from is Greek. Right? So the whole idea, Greek was extremely influential. The Romans, even at this time, were you couldn't, you couldn't even become a Roman elite unless you could speak Greek. That's how important it was. Your status would improve if you were Greek-educated and could speak Greek in Rome. And they spoke Latin. Go figure. And so the worldview of the day, the Greek philosophers believed that the world was created by intelligent design. They believed that there was an intellectual mind beyond within creation and where'd they get that from because they could see the order within creation they could see that the seasons changed and that the sun moved in a distinct pattern and they could see that the structure that there was an order that there wasn't randomness or disorder in in, in the earth and so they said this didn't come from nowhere there must be a genius mind somewhere that created this and this is his logo this is his logos this is this world is the expression of his mind That's how they thought. If you were a Jew, well, the word logos or word would mean a whole entirely different thing. They would know that God framed the world from his word. God said, right? Let there be light. They would understand that the word wasn't just spoken word, but the word was written word. And they would hug. You see, Jews to this day, they hug the Torah. So, John, when he's saying this, in the beginning was the logos, he would get their attention. The Greek would go, what do you mean, the Logos? He's saying, this genius mind that you're talking about, his name is Jesus. This unknown God that you're seeking, his name is Jesus. Come on. Bring it. Boom. <laughs> and so he starts saying this, and he starts explaining this to them. If you look at what we believe today, if you look like, like, okay, so if, ancient history, all of the ancient cultures, Greece, Rome, Egypt, just to name a few. We've got Babylonia, Syria, you know, there's a bunch of ancient cultures that were, Greece is considered the height of human achievement. Not architecturally, not religiously, but definitely culturally. Greece is considered the height of antiquity and the height of human achievement. And they believe that the earth was created through intelligent design. We believe that we just showed up, right? We believe that we all come from monkeys, right? That's what what we believe. We believe that there is no God. In that culture, if you didn't believe in God, you were considered the biggest idiot. They wouldn't even talk to you. You, you You wouldn't even be part of the discussion. The philosophers would always have discussions. And if you entered into the discussion with the philosopher and you were trying to say there is no God, they would dismiss you. Who's this idiot? He doesn't even know one plus one equals two. They wouldn't even let you talk or engage in the conversation. Not our, not our world. If you believe in a creator and you believe in a divine being, you're shown the door. So are we idiots? I think so. The fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool. And they believe that. That's why at Mars Hill, when you see Paul coming, Paul goes at Mars Hill in the book of Acts. And he's speaking to Greeks. And he starts talking about the unknown God. And they're like, bring this babbler to the hill. We want to talk to him. They start engaging him. Why? Because he's speaking of something that they had never heard of. But it related to them in the the realms of their understanding. This is what John's doing. The Wistar Institute a few years back assembled 50 mathematicians. It's this institute that studies biology and all these different things. They put 50 mathematicians, biologists in a camp for a summer. Summer camp for biologists, right? Right? At, you ever heard the word nerd camp? This is like the ultimate nerd camp. Like, I'm a nerd. This is a nerd camp. It's all good, right? And so they, 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 bring, they bring all of these 50 biologists and, and, and mathematicians, and the question that they ask them to take the summer, they want to know, can animate life come from nothing? Can all of this, can we come from nothing? And so biologists, physicists, um, chemists, this whole slew of people... The conclusion of the report said this, I just think they went to have the buffet. I mean, I don't even think they needed three months to figure this out. I just think they went there to camp out, you know, and eat eat the free food or whatever, and sit in the woods for a while, because their conclusion is this, based upon our understanding of the laws of chemistry and physics, what we know is that, and what we know about randomness and mathematical randomness is that there is no way that the complexity of life could just come about The report goes on to say, that for randomness to be responsible for life is a mathematical impossibility. Evolution is a mathematical impossibility. Something doesn't come from nothing. It doesn't come from nothing. Well, we came from a primordial soup. Okay, where'd the primordial soup come from? Uh, we don't know. if If you're into evolution, I'm not trying to win you over, but I think you need to look at it a little bit. It's called a theory for a reason. It can't be proven. And they know it can't be proven. I had a quote from an atheistic um, scientist one time, and he said, I know that evolution is an impossibility, cannot be proven, and will probably never be proven. And he said, but for me to accept the alternative means that I must submit my life to a God that I refuse to bow to. And so he says, I will choose to believe in what I cannot prove. You don't think it's a faith. You don't think it's a religion. It's the worship of the intellect intellectual idolatry. It's man wanting to be God. It's man wanting to define God in his own way and on his own terms. That's what, this, that's what it's all about. Jesus created it all. Something doesn't come from nothing, Christian. If it did, your bank account would be full, right? <laughs> What's the magic word? You know what I'm saying? Food be in the fridge. Boom, there it is, right? I mean, this just doesn't happen. The word was God. So he's saying in the beginning was the Logos, this creative intellectual mind, and this word was God. So this Jesus is God and God, and he is with God. So what he's doing, he's alluding to the Trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This isn't a New Testament concept. This is throughout the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. When Moses asked the Lord in the book of Exodus, he said, who are you? Will you give me your name? And the Lord said what? Anybody know? I am. He used the word I am. It's the transliteration or it's the, it's the word uh, Yehovah, but it means I am. What is he saying? It means eternal one. I am who was, I am who is, and I am who is to come. I am the everlasting. Jesus uses the word, the title, I am seven times. He invokes the divine title. I am come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Before Abraham was, I am. He was crucified for blasphemy. Say, so Jesus never said he was God. Who told you that? They killed him because he said he was God. They crucified him because he said he was God. The word was with God. The word was God. God. So the idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is something that's very mirrored. This is something that's very hidden within the creation. It's not something, it's not something that's New Testament. I'm just trying to see where I put that. Okay. And the Word was God. So the Word was with God. The Word was God. Theos Halogas. God is the Word. He is the creative, collective, genius mind that brings all things to pass. The Trinity is not a New Testament creation. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God uses a plural world. The Hebrew word for God in that passage is plural. It's Elohim. Elohim is not singular. It's plural. All through the Old Testament, you have the word Yahweh. You have the embodied Yahweh, and you have the spirit of Yahweh. So we have the Yahweh God, we have the Yahweh embodied, and we have the spirit of Yahweh. The Yahweh embodied is the one who appeared to Abraham, right? It's called a theophany. It's a divine appearing of Jesus, He's also the one, one of my favorite stories is he appears to Joshua before he goes to Jericho. Joshua's got to go to Jericho. He's got to take on this city. Joshua's freaking out. He's like, I got a bunch of farmers and bricklayers, and I got to go up against this monster thing. What am I going to do? And so he's in a panic, and he's walking around, and he comes across this big angel. And he looks at him, and, he, and the angel of the Lord, the Bible says. And Joshua asked him, he said, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he said, I'm for neither. I'm the commander of the angel armies. (laughs) I'd be like, okay. And he said, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy. How do you know that it's Jesus? Because he received worship. You see angels in the Old Testament that, that, that do not and refuse to receive worship. But every time worship is received, it's Jesus. People don't even know that in the burning bush there was a man in the burning bush. You ever read that in Exodus? We skip over that. It was the embodied God was the visitation, right? Long story. And what he tells him, he he tells Joshua, take off your shoes. And then he goes on to tell him about the victory. What's he saying? Give me honor and I'll give you victory. Christian, you want victory? Give him honor. Give him honor. Honor him, not yourself. Give him honor. Honor the Lord and I will give you victory. Say with me. Come on. I got somebody. <laughs> Say, honor, honor creates access. Where there is no honor, there is no access. You want to access the Holy Spirit? Honor the Lord. That's what worship's all about. I, you, I can prove this to you in about 45 minutes. It's second service. You want to access the Holy Spirit? Come to the second service. And when the worship begins begin to enter into the honor of the Lord and the presence of God will come upon you and you will begin to feel and sense the manifest presence of God, right? People that stand and worship like this and don't engage, you experience nothing. Why? Because you're not honoring him. Your presence here is honoring him. You come here today. That's why 100, say it with me, 100%. You're walking out of here with something. Do you know why? Because you're here to honor him. Nobody does business with God and breaks even. You give him honor, you're going to walk out of here with something. Guaranteed. But you want to experience him? Honor him. One of the easiest ways to honor him is in worship. Boom. You'll you'll feel him. You get the little goosebump going down your arm. You get the warm fuzzy. Don't just get the warm fuzzy. Get the immersion. All of it, man. Lay it down. Let it rain, Jesus. You need it. You need spiritual encounter. You need the rushing wind to blow through this temp- that temple that you, you walk around in. You need him to blow out the dust. You need to purify him. You need to let him purify what you cannot purify. Huh? You need the fire of God to come into you and burn away all of the stupidity and to clarify your mind as to what's really important and what really doesn't matter. So one of the big things about Sunday is how we, as Christians, we get our head on straight. We realize who and what we are. And we realize that we're not ordinary. We're extraordinary. We're not average. We're exceptional. You are not average. The only way you stay average is if you wanna stay average. The Lord's not called you average. He calls you to exceptional. It's true. It's true. Rise to the level of your birth. Rise to the level of your calling. At Kaleo, you are summoned sons and daughters. You are called, sons and daughters, to know him, to be known of him, to experience him, to encounter him, to grow in him until his life is fully integrated with yours. And then you'll affect nations. And then you'll affect change wherever you go. But not until the integration happens. But that's another story for another day. So here's the story of creation. Here's the story of the Trinity. I'm gonna give it to you. Trinity's a big mystery. What you have is you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three is one. And the relationship between them are blurred because they are interchangeable. And what they are is they are a council. It's called the council of the Godhead. Jesus isn't taking counsel with angels. He's not up there going, hey, Michael, what do you think I should do? Any ideas? They take counsel amongst themselves, the council of the triune God. And the father wanted a family. And so what happens is, is the father serves the son. The son serves the father. The Father serves the Spirit. The Spirit serves the Father. The Son serves the Spirit. The Spirit serves the Son. It is a concert of servitude and submission. Servitude within the family of God and within the house of God is of the highest order. It is the very nature of God himself. That's why Jesus, when he washed his feet, what you see me do, do it for each other. Servitude is not a diminishment. Ego is the way of the world. That's what Jesus said. The Gentiles lord it over each other. If you want to concert and you want to expose and express and reveal and understand my divine nature, learn to serve. Learn to serve each other when it's beyond your convenience. Learn to serve each other when you don't want to. Now, mm. yeah. if we serve, we serve it all, but we always serve at the level of convenience. Well, if I'm not doing anything on Sunday, I might. No honor. You have no honor. When you come to see Jesus, you're coming to honor him. Huh? Any moms in the room? Right? When your children come to you, they're honoring you, aren't they? When you invite them over and you're, you, you prepare a dinner, Liuba, right? So I know what Liuba does, or any of y'all out there that do this, and you invite your kids over, you prepare a dinner, and they tell you they're coming, and they don't come. They go out and hang out with their friends. Well, not only are you hurt, you feel disrespected. Don't you? Is the Lord any less than, than, than that? Is he any less than you? He's not. God prepares something for you on Sunday. He wants you to come to him because he's got something for you. And if he does, come on. And if he doesn't have something for you, he's got something through you. Because you're going to carry something to somebody else. So either way, you win. In watering others, you yourself are watered. It's true. God's always got something for you. Church is not an option to the Christian. In this culture, we think it's an option. It is not an option. Well, they say it's an option. Jesus never said it's an option. Forsake not the assemblings of yourselves together. You need the encounter with Jesus. Could it be that church becomes an option because we present the people with no encounter, with no experiential understanding of who he really is and why it matters? We create narcissism within the lives of the, of the Christian, and we tell the Christian it's all about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Your life into him. Yeah? The narrative of the modern church, the narrative of the American church is Jesus is on your agenda. He's going to give you your best life now, and it's almost like Pedro in, uh, in, the, in the movie, um, uh, what is it, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. He'll make all your dreams come true. Right? That's how we treat Jesus. Vote for Jesus. He'll make all your dreams come true. Vote for Pedro, right? <laughs> Who told you that? Who told you that? In him, we live, move, and have our being. We give our lives to Christ. He comes into us, and he lives in us, and great and powerful and, expi- and inspiring things come through your life, not because you're separated from him, but because you're integrated with him. Huh? It's true. My wife looked at me last night. and She's like, I'm really missing church. <laughs> me, I start to fall apart. I'm just like, I mean, I find my way with Jesus. You wonder why you fall apart? You fall apart at the point, of the, way, or the point that you break fellowship with the community, and you fall apart at the point that you break fellowship with the Holy Spirit and his word. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about. People like, they look at me and they go, I don't understand. It. Man, when I come to church, just things just start to go better. I mean, even if they're bad, they go better. And I'm like, hopefully, you'll understand that to the point where you'll give yourself to it, right? Adam and Eve, God wants a family. Jesus, the Father, wants a family. So they're taking counsel. And they're like, well, let's have a family. And Jesus goes, I'll architect it. I'll create it. I'll create the infrastructure. I'll create a world and a universe. And I'll create beings like us. And the Holy Spirit says, and I'll empower them. With our nature. You see the servitude, right? And so that's what happens. And then then Adam is born and Adam rejects God, doesn't want anything to do with God. And the father in the council of the Godhead said, I want my children back. I will not leave them as they are. And so the son says, I'll go into the infrastructure. I'll go into the architecture. I'll become as they are. I will set aside my, my position of deity. And I will walk in the realm of humanity. And the Spirit says, I'll go with you. And He says, I'll do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And I will provide a way for them to come back. That's what Jesus is He's a way, He's the only way. You're not coming to the Father without Jesus. And the Father's the only one who wants you. Jesus, the triune God, the fullness of the Godhead, is the only one that wants you. Your cat doesn't always want you. Your dog doesn't always want you. Your wife and your kids don't always want you. And sometimes you don't want yourself, but Jesus always wants you. And he is the way. And he enters the architecture and he enters the infrastructure. You think you're going to do life without Jesus? Good luck. He built it. He built it. Sin has destroyed it. Sin has wrecked it. And there's dysfunction within the system. But there can be victory within the system because Jesus knows the system. You don't. You don't. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts above your thoughts. Right? It's true. And so Christ comes as us. He was in the beginning. Creation is God's specialty. He created the heavens and the earth. You need a new creation. He can create you new. You need a do over, you need a mulligan, you need a start over. He's all about that. He will bring restoration or he'll bring something brand new. Jesus, I need a new job. Boom. You're speaking his language. Well, why do you want it? You know, it's a whole different kind of conversation. But nonetheless, it's possible. God will do it for you. I've blown up my house, I can't fix it. Jesus can. Say it with me there's a process to the promise. I want to destroy your illusions of the shazam Christianity. God will restore you. You know we say shazam, and we think that's how everything changes. It doesn't change like that. God will put you through a process, and He will bring the transformation, but you must follow Him through a process. Yeah, He'll do. He'll restore you. He'll restore your fortunes. He'll restore your relationships. He'll restore your. He restore your sanity. He will. Thank you, Lord. But you got to follow him in the process. He'll instruct you and lead you and take you there. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. There's three realms of life. There are realms of life. I don't know if you're aware of that. There's the bios, which is your body. There's the suke, which is your soul. And there's the pneuma, which is your spirit. Right? The Bible says without Jesus, you're spiritually dead. Oh, you have a spirit, and that spirit is eternal. It will live forever with Jesus, Or without Jesus. And the Bible says that when you give your life to Christ, he gives you something that you can get no other way. He puts zoe into you. That's the word of animate life. Jesus takes his life and puts it inside of you and illuminates you. Anybody born again here? Right? Now, maybe you haven't encountered this in a long time, but when you got born again, you were like, what happened? Right? Right? You're just like, I don't know, man. I can hear songs. Man, food never smelled so good. What is that? Is that cheese? I've never tasted cheese like that, right? You see colors. Things are just animate, alive. And what happens as Christians is we silence it. We don't live from it. We start reverting back to old ways and old lives, right? That life and that animate life is still there. You're just neglecting it. You're neglecting it. It's always there. The well's there. You just don't drop the bucket. That animate life is given to you. When you come to Christ, you're given animate life. That's why the Bible says the one that does not have the spirit of God does not belong to Jesus. Because it's the spirit. This is how we know we're Christians. How do you know Jesus is real? Well, let me quantify that for you and let me give you some intellectual understanding. You don't even need to do that. He lives in me. What do you mean he lives in me? I don't know. He lives in me. He said he knocks at the hard door of my heart. I opened my hard door. He came in. Boom, I gave him my life, and he's alive in me. That's all I know. And he'll do the same thing for you. What's changed? Everything. Everything. He gives you life. And that life becomes, say it with me, the light, or excuse me, the life is to become our light. What is he saying? We are to live from the life in the spirit. Your lack of illumination is directly related to your unwillingness. To follow the Holy Spirit. It's true. The life, the zoe, the impartation, the power of the Holy Spirit becomes the illumination. Becomes the light. How do I do my marriage? Boom. He'll illuminate it. How do I do my business, Holy Spirit? Boom. He'll illuminate it. The life becomes the light. It's a light that shines in the darkness and it calls all people to him. But it's a light and a gift to the believer you are Without Christ, you're, you're without animate, you're inanimate, spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, you are made alive in Christ, and you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 8.10 says, but if you're in Christ, your body's dead, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. What is this saying? My body's not dead. What he's saying is that the natural order of, you, of who you are has been inverted has been set right. Without Christ you follow your body, don't you? Right. right? You ever see men without Jesus? They they walk around like this. Right? They're following what's going on beneath their pants. They're following human appetites, human hunger. It's true. You're like, I don't know about that, Pastor. It's true. People without Christ tend to follow human appetite. They tend to follow emotion, they tend to follow intellect, they tend to follow, all of that stuff's important. The body is necessary, the intellect is necessary, the emotions are necessary, but what is right is that the spirit is now what is right. The body is dead, the spirit is alive because of righteousness, this is right. Right to God is to follow the spirit of God, not the worldly culture, the appetites of the culture, the ego, Right? The narcissism of the society in which we live. You say, will Jesus make me successful? Yes, but why do you want it? Why do you want it? The greatest success coach the planet has ever seen, his name is Jesus. Read Joshua 1. Read Joshua 1. He tells him, listen to me and you will make your way prosperous and you will find good success. What's he tell Abraham? I'll give you more than you could ever imagine. What did he tell David? If what I gave you wasn't enough, David, I would have given you more. The problem is, is that we don't follow what is right to him. We follow our own way, and we use Jesus as a token of our lives. He's a token. You know, when we need him, we just throw the token in there and make a quick phone call, get ourselves fixed up, and then off we go again. He'll do triage. I tell Christians all the time, he'll do triage. He'll help you. He'll be your first responder. But at what point are you going to grow up and stop using Jesus to put Band-Aids on you? When are you going to mature and live as a son and a daughter and begin to become an integrated part of his family and walk and serve and live in and through him? Say, I don't know what I'm doing. That's the art, Christian. That's the relationship. That's the whole journey. That's what it's all about. We get lost. We live according to old patterns. God will make you successful. My question is, is why do you want it? This is his question. I want a million dollars. Anybody want a million dollars? Raise your hand, come on, don't be shy. Don't be shy, right? who want $50 million, $100 million? Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. That's not the issue. You know what the issue is? Why do you want it? That is the question. That is the kingdom question. The kingdom question is why do you want it? Well, so I don't have to pay my, wrong answer. As soon as you take that answer, that, the answer to that question, and you invert it back to yourself, that's, you are not, heaven's not responding. I want to get married. Why? So I'm not alone. God, give me a spouse so I'm not alone. He's like, I've given you my spirit. So why do you want a spouse? So I'm not alone. He's not answering. He's not answering. You want Jesus to answer? I want a spouse so that we can be an apostolic team. And we can live in and with you and serve you unto your purposes, whatever that may be. I'll give you a prayer. Lord, as you sent the apostles out two by two, give me a spouse. Give me a mate. Give me someone that I can bond my life to and that can bond their life to me that we might serve you in whatever capacity, in whatever field, in whatever vocation. And you know what happens? The gravity field of heaven is over you. Why? I could tell you, you want money? Money? Money is not Jesus' problem. Faith and obedience is his problem. Devotion is his problem. What happens, most people strike hands with the Lord. They endure his prayer. They receive his prosperity, and off they go. Off they go. Forgetting all about Jesus, building their ego again. Then all of a sudden, they're destroyed, and you're like, oh, I lost it all. I've witnessed that multiple times. Several guys at this church, I could tell you stories. Like, how do I get there? I tell them, do this. I tell them, do this. There are two people. One of them will probably be here, but maybe both of them will be here next service. Like, what do I do? And it's not like because I'm a guru. I just tell them to do what Jesus told. I said, do these things. Do these things. Stay this course. Stay this course. Both of them couldn't rub nickels together two years ago. Both of them. One of them makes well over six figures, and the other one's on the brink of multi-million dollar deals in spades. But you know what they do? They do what most will not. They honor God. They make a covenant with God. They give, not out of their abundance, but they give out of honor. And they begin to follow the principles and the ways of God, and they begin to put faith on it and let God exponentially expand what they're thinking in their mind. And God begins to direct them, sometimes out of the field that they're in and into another field. Why is God making that change? Because that field cannot take you to the place that I've promised you. You wonder why you lose your job? Because it's too limited. Right? Oh, I could go off on this. I mean, I know this is real. I've seen this time and again. I'll tell you another one. Guy tells comes to me and says, I, you know, I make about X amount of money. He's like, I'm believing God for a million dollar contract this year. What do I need to do? Boom! I told him. It wasn't like a 30 second conversation. We started trying to understand where he's coming from. I said, do these things. Do these things. I started telling him. He got a $975,000 contract within seven months. You say, he didn't get a million. He got a $975,000 contract within seven months. You don't think he wants to give it? But this person struck hands with the Lord, and then he decided he didn't need to do it. Once he got the contract, he comes to me and says, and I didn't, I just was like, well, it's not biblical. He says, well, God told me I don't have to give anymore. I'm like, oh, once you get the million-dollar contract, you don't have to give anymore. Is that how it goes? I, just, I didn't say I didn't, you know. But that was what I was thinking. I was like, ah. Wow. But I told him, I said it's not biblical. I said, it's not scriptural, right? And so, what happens is, is people like that they either go into misfortune, or they have their abundance and they have leanness in their soul. They have a lot of money, but they can't make their marriage work. They have a lot of money, but their kids are on drugs. They have a lot of money, but they, they can't sleep at night. They're tormented by their riches. They have leanness in their soul. Oh, they got their prosperity. But because they forsook the relationship and the fountain that brought them to it, now they're lean. Now they're famished. Just a thought. <laughs> light becomes light, illuminates us. I want to say this. and I'm going to close right here. Right? The light moves into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Christian, to the unbeliever, you're in darkness, and you don't have any hope without Jesus. You ain't getting out of that darkness without Jesus. I'll, I'll use proper grammar. You are not getting out of that darkness without Jesus. You're not. Sai Baba isn't helping you. Shaka Guru, L. Ron Hubbard. Tony Robbins, I don't care. You're not getting out of that darkness without Jesus. You will have darkness, and you cannot get it off you without Christ. But if you're a Christian, the majority of the problems in your life and the pre-existing problems in your life is because you allow dark areas in your life. Now, I'm not talking about, like, smoking, drinking, and chewing, and hanging out with those who are doing You're like, oh, man, I knew I shouldn't listen to Jay-Z. <laughs> I knew it. It's not the area I'm talking about. The darkness is disobedience. The darkness is issues within your heart that you refuse to deal with. You see, the devil, people say, well, where's the devil? He's the prince of power of the air, but he also, he's also in darkness. The devil trades in darkness. So his manipulation, his power and control are in the areas of darkness within your life. The darkness of ignorance. Ready? I'll give you another one. The darkness of arrogance. <gasps> I'm not arrogant. I'm humble. I've given my life to Jesus. Does this time belong? Does your time belong to Jesus? No. There's darkness in that area. Does your finances belong to Jesus? No. There's darkness in that area. Does your marriage belong to Jesus? No. There's darkness in that area. Does your future belong to Jesus? No. There's darkness in that area. Your faith, your family, your finances, your friends and your future. The five key areas of your life. They're called to be integrated fully integrated. We think that discipleship is giving our lives to Jesus and reading our Bibles. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is full integration. In him we live, move, and have our being. You don't have to. You get to, right? You want to experience dominion? You want to experience an unstoppable force? You want to experience power? You want to experience the overcoming promise that God has made you? Get rid of the darkness. That's where the devil's trading from, Christian. He's trading, he's trading and manipulating and maneuvering in your life. When you let the light into that world, the darkness can't stop it. It's inevitable. Dealt with demons for 15 years. They tell me all the time, this ain't gonna happen. I'm like, it's inevitable. Sit down and shut up. This is going to happen. It's not, we're not negotiating. It's funny, demons always wanna negotiate. We're not negotiating. We're not negotiating. This is not a negotiation. <laughs> this is an acquisition. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Say it with me. Come on. Say with me. Holy Spirit. I dare you. I dare you. Dangerous prayer. Dangerous prayer. Say, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit I, give I give you permission to reveal to me the dark areas of my life, whether it be disobedience, ignorance, arrogance, whatever it may be, the areas of my life where your light does not shine. He's going to show you. Some of you are going to have crazy dreams. Some of you are going to be driving in your car, and the Lord's going to go, dunk 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 dunk. He's going to start pointing things out to you. You know why? Because you asked him. Jesus is not going to show you if you don't ask. If you're not asking, he's not telling. That's the way he is. You read the Gospels, you're going to see it. The only time Jesus answered a question is when the question was asked. The other times he did stuff, and he just looked to see if anybody had a question. No questions? Oh, okay, and he'd move on. It's true if you're not asking he's not telling oh god will show me no he won't no he won't if anyone lacks wisdom let them what oh god's just going to show me what to do no he's not you have to ask just a thought all right i'm four minutes over that's not bad that's not bad not bad not bad welcome back (laughs) i just wanted to throw that darkness thing in there try to help some of you, right? Don't you want to be everything Jesus has called you to be? If He's made a promise to you. Don't you want it? If he is the fullness of life, don't you want to experience it, right? Don't you want a little taste of the glory? See what it tastes like, right? Like that? Where's that from? Nacho Libre, right? Okay, so all right. I'm throwing all the Wes Anderson films out here this morning. Anyway. <laughs> if you don't know Jesus, you're in darkness, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Christ this morning. Very simple, very unassuming. We do it as a family. If you're watching and you don't know Christ, today's your day. Not tomorrow, not next week. This isn't the opportunity you refuse. This isn't something you think about. It's something you do. All of us have a sin problem. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages and the penalty of that sin sin is death or eternal loss. But the gift of God is eternal life. This is what we're talking about through Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you'll be saved. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to understand to believe. You don't have to understand thermodynamics. You don't have to understand the laws of lift and thrust to get on an airplane. You get on an airplane believing that it's going to take you where it needs to go and you don't understand a thing about airplanes or avionics. Right? You sit down in a chair and you don't, have anything under, you don't have any understanding about weight distribution. But you believe that chair is going to hold up. You don't have to understand. He doesn't tell you to understand. Understanding comes later. The only thing you're given to understand is that you're lost and he's the Savior and the only one who can. So we're going to say a prayer. And if you're watching, we want to encourage you to say the prayer. And if you're there in a room and there's people watching, pray together. Pray together. Don't let the one person pray and everybody stare and look at them. Well, I thought you were saved, Steve. What are you doing there? (laughs) Pray together, Christian. (laughs) Right? We're a family. We pray as one. right? Everybody has to do this. We all come to Christ the same way. You don't come to Jesus any other way. You cannot. You have to believe and let him come in. He stands at the door. Open the heart. Let's pray. Just say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me, I ask you to heal me, I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you, in Jesus' name, amen. God loves you, we love you. Amen. come on, let's get... (laughs) We have a prayer team available. If you need prayer, we have people available to pray for you. And then we're going to say one more blessing over you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may he give you peace, and may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen.